Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm talking today with Scott Barry Kaufman, or SBK, as he told me his friends call him, SBK PhD. Scott is a cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist exploring the mind, creativity, and the depths of human potential. He's the founder and director of the Center for the Science of Human Potential, and is an honorary principal fellow at the University of Melbourne Center for Wellbeing Science. He's the author of several books, including Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, and the host of the Psychology Podcast with over 17 million downloads. Scott received a PhD in cognitive psychology from Yale University and has taught courses on intelligence, cognitive science, creativity, and well-being at Columbia University, Yale, NYU, the University of Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. In 2015, he was named one of 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world by Business Insider. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Sharon. I can't wait to talk to you today. It's so lovely to see you, to be with you. Yeah, um, always. Your work has is, is piqued a real curiosity in me, and I'm, I'm excited. Um, before we dive in, I would just love to know how one becomes a cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist. <laughs> That's not a, not a common pairing. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I don't know actually anyone else who's ever uh, described themselves as both those things. Um, I started off in the field as a cognitive scientist uh, studying intelligence and what are the brain and neural underpinnings of intelligence. And I was thinking in those days that understanding intelligence would give me the key to understanding human potential. And I realized as I moved on in my career that that was only the starting point, not the ending point. I started to get into creativity research. Um, great creativity research, I would say, was my gateway drug into humanistic psychology. And then when I started studying creativity, I started reading um, some of the classic writers on this topic, like um, Roll May, uh, The Courage to Create, which is a classic. He's a humanistic psychologist. And uh, Frank Barron did uh, some seminal studies on that topic. And he was kind of on the border of these two things as well, cognitive science and humanistic psychology. And I fell in love uh, with the writings of Abraham Maslow when I was uh, a professor at Penn um, and just uh, went down the whole rabbit hole of humanistic psychology and just felt as though that was something that was missing from um, definitely cognitive science, that kind of approach, to, um, as well as uh, other fields in psychology, in modern day psychology. So your latest book, Transcend, came out in 2020 and is a reimagining of Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs. So uh, could you tell us something about maybe your first encounter with Maslow and, and its effect on you and something about the model? Yeah. When I was uh, preparing a course at, at Penn on positive psychology, introduction to positive psychology for the undergrads, I was looking, preparing my lecture on the history of the field, and I came across the writings of Abraham Maslow and um, the characteristics of self-actualizing people. And it really uh, blew my mind 
uh, enough where I started to, like when I get into something, I like really get into it. So I looked to see all the things he wrote and I discovered that he had these journals on Amazon that um, that were ranked like 5 billion. Like no one had read these things, um, you know, and I, and I was like, oh, this feels like something that, you know, I, it was an excitement, seek my teeth into something that maybe you know, a lot of people aren't aware of. And I spent months reading his two volume personal diaries um, two volume set personal diaries and realized as I was reading this that holy cow he was he was working on a whole new theory of transcendence he was working on uh, he never even drew a pyramid I didn't see a pyramid in any of his writings and all these misconceptions and it just inspired me to write a book and talk about uh, kind of extend his vision of self-actualization and transcendence on modern day scientific principles well you know I always love talking to you and I especially wanted to talk to you at this very moment in time yeah. Because I'm working on a book, and um, the first chapter, um, it actually begins with um, being in lockdown in 2020, as as we were, and uh, watching this show online called Saturday Night Seder, which was, you know, inevitably one was not going out to someone's house and having a Seder, and, you know, Growing up Jewish, I'm not an observant Jew or practicing Jew, but that as a kind of uh, this is a family time, this is a time to get together with friends. This is this is a ritual that I actually uh, feel still feel connected to. So, um, and what I've I've learned, you know, both from watching that that show online and uh, just from from life, is that uh, it's all a symbolic journey. You know that Egypt, the word for Egypt actually means a narrow place, a place of contraction, of constriction. And so it's a journey from constriction to expansion, to openness, to freedom. And so I began thinking, what are, the, what are other journeys, you know, that are depicted um, in, in our time? And I thought of, of course, the Eightfold Path. And I thought of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I thought, oh, Good. yeah. There's Scott, you know. <laughs> That's right. You know, in a lot of ways, what I try to resurrect uh, is uh, the, the main principles of his theory of motivation, which I think map really nicely onto those two things you talked about. He talked about, he, he referred to it as the, the uh, deficiency motivation versus growth motivation. Um, when you're motivated by deficiency, you're motivated um, you know, to to lessen um, some pain you're feeling in some way or some hole in your heart. So, um, if you're very hungry, you know everything looks like food to you. You know, a, a potential utility value for for feeding your hunger. If you're really lonely, everything looks like its potential value for um, for connection. Um, and if you are lacking in self-esteem, everything looks like it's potential value in, in giving you respect and, and, and pride and making you feel good about yourself. But if, if you can enter the, the growth realm, it's like replacing a cloudy lens with a clear lens. And I really do think it's, you know, it, it, it's like opening up and expanding to uh, the unknown. And you're not, you're not being driven by uh, fear, you know, but you're driven by a spirit of exploration. And maybe you could explain um, the image that you use in your book uh, of the sailboat instead of the pyramid. Yeah. So uh, what I did is I revamped the hierarchy of needs so that 
the clunky pyramid is replaced by a sailboat metaphor. And uh, I think that the sailboat works nicely as a metaphor because you have uh, the boat, uh, and if you have too many holes in the boat, you're not going to move anywhere. Uh, and you're going to be kind of stuck. You're going to feel like you're, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to want to be vulnerable to the winds and the waves of the ocean. But even if your, if your boat is plugged, you know, up and you feel safe and secure and you feel like, you know, your needs for connection, your needs for, uh, self-esteem, your need for safety are, are secure enough that you can move. You're still not going to move anywhere unless you eventually open that sail. You know, growth requires moving. It, even in the, in the direction, that your most valued direction, you know, you have a port in mind that you want to sail to, but you know that it's not going to be easy sailing. That there could be the vast unknown of the sea can bring all sorts of uh, things that can can block you on your path. But you know, ultimately, in order to grow, you have to you have to do that. You have to. There's a yeah, there's there's a, a dynamic aspect to being, uh, you know, uh, if you want to grow. Um, so you know, this is this is uh, kind of transforming, like I said, the clunky pyramid into a dynamic model of mm-hmm. of the human, as well as you know, talking about integration as the as what's really important, because with a sailboat, it, it, it's it, what matters is the, how the whole unit is moving. Mm-hmm. You know, for with humans, it, it matters how the whole the whole unit is moving. It's not just one part of us that matters. You know, it's how they all operate in, with each other. Do you have acceptance of your a certain size or a certain size of yourself that you're not accepting? Are they pulling the rest of the boat down? You know, these sorts of things. Does, is it like a hierarchy that sort of maps onto the chakras? Like you have to, is security yeah. at the base and then, you know, you move up, so to speak, move up, you know? I, yeah, even though it's not a like a video game, but I do. I, I, it's interesting to me how many people when I presented my sailboat to, they have said, "Oh, that sounds like the chakras." Mm-hmm. Now, look, there's. I think it's so cool when, when ancient wisdom, you know, dovetails with modern day science. That's mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I like very that. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, another thing that I was really kind of grappling with in in imagining this journey, the exodus, the movement from constriction to expansion and maybe this is part of what you mean by integration is that it's not that solely linear it's not like you can say well i've taken care of security now i'm i'm up in the heart you know like now we're dealing with belonging or i don't know exactly what the you know the order is but going on the chakras you know on on that um sense like I, i remember a friend of mine who was kind of romantically interested in somebody and then uh, from a distance. And then through some chain of, of coincidental events, she ended up getting a job interview with this person and she didn't get the job. But uh, at the time she said, I realize I've gone down the chakras. You know, what I want is like, you know, I, I want some security, I want some stability in my life more than the romance. And so, you know, we go up and down in some ways. We do, and and I don't think that that it's a progression. Um, well, first of all, it's not it's not a progression where you never return to the to the other needs. Mm-hmm, that, you mm-hmm. know, the needs can always be op- opened at any time. But also, I don't think there's anything that, like better or worse about. I don't. You know, my model of transcendence is a, more of a horizontal model than a vertical model. You know, I just don't think. Um, 
you know, there, there, there's a phrase in psychology called the I'm enlightened and you're not effect mm. that um, has been linked to narcissism. And I, I re- I've written about this in a, an article I wrote for Scientific American on spiritual narcissism. And that's not what I'm promoting in my book. Um, trying to, uh, you know, you don't, you don't do these practices. I mean, you're the, you're, you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but um, this is great. <laughs> one, one, one doesn't do these practices because the goal, they have a goal of like self-enhancement. Yet, I think that because humans, we have to be keep that in check because I think it's so normal, uh, such a human thing to to even if we that's not our stated goal and we we're committed to not that being the case, it can crop up any time. I I see it, uh, I see it even myself on the apps, you know, because they believe you know in some of these apps they give you trophies if you've like meditated a certain number of hours. Like really? I think the I never app, got the trophy. Oh dear. <laughs> You deserve it out of anyone. You deserve a trophy. You should have a trophy. It's you know one of these virtual trophies, right? Or like you know they'll say like congratulations, you've meditated um, percent more than the average person, and it's like what? Don't give me that information. Uh, that's uh, that's not the headspace I want to be in. Yeah. Well, you know what I think some of that is. I mean, I don't know the particular apps, but uh, I think that some people have really tried to understand um, habit formation from a modern mm-hmm. psychological point of view and what actually helps one do a practice. Because, of course, that's the hard part. It's like you could admire the idea of practice or, you know, frankly, you can write books about it and never, you know, sit down on a cushion. And, and uh, you know, so I think there's some effort. And whether that rah-rah, you know, kind of like, you got to try me. <laughs> Is, is well, we got to be motivated somehow. <laughs> yeah, is scientifically valid, and I have no idea. Um, yeah, but you know, like, well, uh, I, I did talk to a monk once, though. Uh, uh-huh. I, I talked to a monk once who was kind of like bragging to me, though, that they like, they're like, they're like, I do, I meditate ten hours a day <laughs> now, yeah. and. Um, I, I've got the whole monastery beat. And I just remember listening to this person like, wow, we're all still human, right? Like, you know, you can call yourself a monk, but, you know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. In moving through um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is it always an individual journey or is it something to do with community as well? Yeah, I'm really, really glad you brought that up. Um, I would say the like one of the biggest things I'm remiss about in my book, uh, if I could write a sequel, Transcend Two, it mm-hmm. would be it would be much much more about community actualization than self actualization. Not that I think self actualization is important. I'm glad I wrote part one. Mm-hmm. I have no regrets mm-hmm. about part one. But if I could write a sequel, um, eh, who knows? Maybe I will someday. But um, Transcend, I, I think, transcending transcend. Exactly. Yeah, transcending transcend. Would I um. I've learned a lot about indigenous uh, wisdom. Um, I, I was reading about it while I was writing the book, but then even after a book that came out, there were um, some writers who were writing about some of the stuff and how and 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 noting that Maslow visited um, uh, one of the reserves in Canada um, during a field trip he was doing, and he 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 learned a lot from them. And and I was reading about some of that indigenous wisdom where they actually view community actualization as the height mm-hmm. of the TP sort of idea um, uh, uh, in terms of uh, what's what's most important. 
um, just really like supporting each other and, and your neighbors. I think that that that's a really important part of transcendence, for sure. You know, self actualization, as Maslow wrote, is really just a when done right. He says its its function is to erase itself, and I think that's, mm-hmm. that that always really stood out to me that that kind of that idea that the you know the kind of the goal of self actualization in a way is to is to be all that you can be so that you merge, you know, it's called synergy is a word that Maslow used a lot. It's where what is good for you is automatically good for the world. So mm-hmm. there's just not much separation between one's being and the world. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I think about transcendence, not kind of, that is how I think about transcendence. And that's the the transcendence model. But um, the community actualization part is kind of what does a self-actualizing society look like? What is it? What is this? And I talk about that briefly, but I'd love to be able to expand on that someday. You know, what are, what does a society look like where everyone is um, caring about um, the greater good of basic needs? You know, um, not just security, but 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 connection needs. Um, and uh, and self-esteem needs in the sense that people have opportunity. Everyone has an opportunity to have some pride and mastery in the work they want to do. Uh, I think that's a just an extraordinarily important question. I mean, I think that would be an amazing, amazing piece of work. So please do it. And it really just popped into my mind because you mentioned that monk, and I thought, well, oh. you know, the um, uh, nature of how so many people practice these days is so alone and mm. and the original kind of context was a community so that monk would have been uh you know surrounded by other monks for example and maybe a teacher saying get off it you know <laughs> like yeah. that's yeah. like a little much to be holding on to yeah. you know yeah. something like that but but we don't always have that so that it just came into my head you know yeah i, I i'm so glad you that that did come into your head because it's uh, it's been on my mind as well. You know, so this is not a visual medium for uh, other people. You and I can see each other because <laughs> how we're recording. And so I see that neon brain behind you, uh, which I'm, I'm very attracted to. <laughs> and uh, I wondered um, if you could help me understand uh, contraction, which, you know, I'm, I'm in contraction, I'm talking about um, you know, states of fear, states of guilt, you know, and uh, in contrast to expansion, like love, you know, mm. not in the obsessed sense of the word, but more open sense of the word. And and the brain, you know, somebody uh, referred to the default network once to me in that context. So, Sure. Um, I'm very interested in, in this uh, part of this brain network, the default mode network, uh, it serves so many different functions, and uh, we can't reduce it to a single function. Even though I've done that in the past, I've called it the imagination network, is what I've called it, um, just to be cute. But it obviously serves more than just that function. But but a core part of it is our ability to um, to uh, project ourselves mentally into the future. That is certainly a, a core part of this brain network, um, and and the, and a function of of why all these different regions work together to do mental simulation, um, particularly of things that are social in nature. So things that involve ourself, you know, in some way, like we see ourselves in the situation in the future, and we can kind of visualize it. What's interesting is that you know it's it's not like there's any brain network that's like all good or all bad. I mean, so mm-hmm. there there. Um, 
there are times when um, you know, like psychedelic trips actually quiet the default mode network. Mm-hmm. Like there are times when I think that it's beneficial to uh, have no self, you know, uh, uh, concept and to see what that's like, that kind of expansiveness is like. But I think there is a k- different kind of expansiveness um, that's related to the default network, mode, uh, network activation that allows us to uh, have a leap of imagination to uh, have a uh, compassion for someone else. Because I really do think perspective, so not think, but the research does show that perspective taking draws on these brain networks. So if, if we cut this brain network out of you, yeah, you might actually lose a sense of self, but I think you'd also lose a lot of compassion. I really do. Mm-hmm. Because in order to have compassion, you have to have a, a leapfrog from yourself to be able to make a connection to someone else's self and to imagine oh, well, that is must be what they're going through because that's what it's like when I go through X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. My colleague, Marin Hel- Mary Helen Imardino yang is, uh, is on the forefront of, of studying this topic and showing its linkage to what she calls reflective compassion, being able to reflectively understand um, and feel uh, for the suffering of someone else does require these brain networks. So I do, I think it's not a complete story uh, to just say, you know, in the meditation world, like the goal is to quiet the default mode network, which you do hear sometimes in mm-hmm. certain uh, aspects, um, as though that that always would be good. I think there's a time and place for that, and I also think there's a time and place for for fully activating it and uh, and really getting uh, deeply in touch with um, a shared our shared humanity with others by by bringing yourself to the table. Well, one of the first steps it makes a lot of sense, and uh, my mind also went to one of the first steps. Um, is being able to open to and acknowledge your own painful states because that's what yeah. you're bringing to the table is that, oh, I, as you put it, you know, it was basically, I can imagine what that would feel like because I remember the time yes. when, you know, nobody would talk to me when I walked into the room or I was looked through or looked down, whatever it is, you know. And, and if we've been cut off from the more full acknowledgement and recognition of that, what are we bringing to the table? <laughs> That's exactly right. In fact, something that's really interesting about the human imagination and, and how it draws in that brain network is that uh, human imagination requires our ability to remember the past. Um, it, that's what it's drawing on is its raw material. So as we age, we lose our memory, but often not as discussed as we also lose our ability for imagination. Um, people who are dementia um, have trouble, real serious trouble being able to imagine any future. Now, some people have, I guess, jokingly, it's dark humor, but have suggested that's actually really good. Uh, You know, like if you're near death, you know, you don't want to have too much hope for the future, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of helpful, uh, a defense mechanism to to not be able to imagine yourself too much in the future. But, um, but you know, I, I think that uh, a, lot, a lot of people aren't aware of that dynamic interplay between being able to remember the past and being able to think of the future, you know? Yeah, well, I certainly was not aware of it, you know, until yeah. this moment. Yeah. Until this moment. Yeah. And I'm getting older. So I was like, <laughs> all right. So uh, in terms of what you just said about, you know, people say with dementia, um, do you uh, agree with the studies that say things like... Um, if you play the music of their teenage hood to somebody with dementia, they will uh, have greater I don't know, clarity, uh, happiness. Yeah, uh, happiness. Yeah, 
you know, there, there's so, some beautiful examples of that. People who, um, like this man who couldn't, didn't have a memory more than uh, 20 seconds. And, uh, and so, you know, every time his son would come back, he'd be like, hello, I haven't seen you in 20 years. Every single time. Oh. Yet, you know, they, they play this music and you could just see him just so deeply touched and he's able to kind of stay with the music the whole more than 20 mm-hmm. seconds mm-hmm. you know there's something it really does activate a different system you know well you know limbic system and other parts that um we have these deeply and deeply encoded uh associations between our emotional emotions and uh and, and music memory so there's something special about the music domain um do you think that there's certain qualities that we can cultivate perhaps that help us mm-hmm move through this hierarchy of needs? Sort of what, what, uh, what sort of things we can develop, like in, in our resources? Well, you know, I'm, I'm just, yeah, like I, w- I was thinking of, um, well, you had mentioned earlier perspective taking, mm. you know, like, like having some uh, greater flexibility or imagination. Mm. You know, how much do we need imagination to even dare to think of uh, something changing? And I think so. You know, a big part of this shift is, 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 is shifting from that fear, that deprivation motivation into the base mm-hmm. leading from a base of exploration. You know, if the base of the boat is, is security uh, or safety, the base of the sail is exploration. And mm-hmm. I do think being able to react to everything that enters your environment with that sense of just wonder and curiosity is 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 the way forward for self actualization. You know, um, mm-hmm. because there is going to be so much uncertainty uh, everywhere we look, and it depends how you deal with that uncertainty. How do you manage your uncertainty? You know, um, uncertainty management is is really important for um, reducing what psychologists call psychological entropy in the brain. Um, when, when we have too many things that we feel like we're un- are uncontrolled, um, we do get kind of pitched in this state of fear. And uh, and, and I, I, you know that's a, just a. I think we can use our imagination um, in ways to kind of get us out of that. So if you had somebody in front of you um, struggling, you know, and uh, you felt that kind of compassionate urge to mm. try to help them. Do you think part of that would be instilling a sense of confidence in them that change could be possible, that movement is possible, that, you know, uh, aside from whatever skills or, you know, a reminder that it's step by step, something like that. But yes, yeah, like hope. Um, it seems like we get stuck. Mm. Yeah, like hope, exactly. We get. We get stuck so often just thinking, well, this is it. Yeah, for sure. Um, hope is something that has to be learned. You know, there's this famous model of learned helplessness that was developed yeah. in the 70s and 80s, Martin Seligman and his colleagues. And uh, and the idea back then was that we what is learned is, is, is helplessness, that we, we get in these kind of situations well, the, and started with dogs, you know, who... Um, couldn't, uh, you know, started to learn that they would 
be shocked if they left a uh, a box, but then eventually, even when the box was open and they weren't being shocked anymore, they stayed in the box. But the researchers have changed that model more recently, and and have admitted that they may have gone it completely backwards. That what is what is mm-hmm. actually learned is hope, not helplessness, and that helplessness is the default response in animals, and that. They, and and in the, from a brain cyst perspective, there 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 are two different systems: fear fear learning and fear unlearning are two different systems. Fear learning is in a very very um, primitive part of the brain, and we can have all these automatic. It's like an automatic response to stimuli that looks similar to 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 the original situation. We fear unlearning or, or hope um, requires active you know imagination. It requires overriding. And, uh, and learning the skills to override it, maybe even feel those primitive feelings, but not uh, let it control you anymore. And I think that's a really mm-hmm. uh, a really key difference in the word helplessness model over the years. Mm, I think as you're going to pursue your next book and in, in terms of society, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's, uh, I can't wait to read it. I think it's going to be like so good. Um, and so important, you know, it's like, uh, cause in, you know, in Buddhist language, we would call it aspiration. Mm. Um, and I've often said that I th- it seems to me we live in a time of very blunted aspiration collectively. Mm. You know, we can't, we don't dare to imagine transcending or, you know, really being happy and, I don't know. There are probably a lot of things that contribute to that. Do we deserve to be happy? That's or, a good point. You know, with so many people suffering in the world today, you have a lot of really truly compassionate people who don't feel like they're worthy of of even being happy. Because you know, I see this a lot mm-hmm. among people, very well-meaning people um, who are, mm-hmm. do have a big heart, um, and. Uh, you know, they'll say, well, like, you know, look at all the, you know, racial issues going on right now and people who have it much worse than me, who am I to be happy? But I don't think that's the right way to think about it. You know, um, I've always believed, and I, I teach this in my Columbia class as well, because I, I have a lot of students interested in social justice at Barnard College. Um, and, um, and I try to just show them that your, your activism work, the work you do, uh, it needs to build on a foundation of your wholeness. You know, if it's mm-hmm. built on a faulty foundation, you're not going to be in the maximal position to help the world, right? And 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 you get at this beautifully in your new book on real love, right? So uh, we're we're so aligned on this. You know, I don't think it's a choice. I guess the point I'm saying it's not a choice that you either choose your own happiness or you choose the happiness of others. And I think this is really the transcendence synergy that I'm talking about here is that, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the ultimate when there's this deep integration of self-actualization and transcendence. Um, it seems really important. And, and I think with the kind of loss of relative loss of hope, there's also been a relative loss of creative energy because they're they seem to be aligned to me and and we're kind of stuck you know thinking in a lot of compromised ways of what we're capable of and and part of that of course is that it's reinforced by a lot of the cultural messaging you know where where happiness is to be found in completely unrealistic places like uh, never getting older Mm. having just had a birthday Happy um, birthday, Sharon! 
Thank you, Emily. I, I wished you a happy birthday so, on Twitter, by the way. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. And uh, I just sent somebody uh, something on Twitter that uh, mentioned him and or mentioned his product, and and I, I sent it with a saying, um, I'm sure you've already seen this, and he wrote back and said, no, actually, I haven't, and I was about to write back. So I guess that's because you're not on Twitter 20 hours either way. I am. <laughs> you missed that. Are um, you on Twitter so that you. often? I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm not uh, on Twitter 20 hours a day, no, I but don't. I am on but Twitter. But you are on Twitter a lot. It's actually me. It's, you know, it's not a I bot. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Anything else? So, um, so where would you say happiness is actually found in life? Oh. I wish I could. It's funny. I wish I could re- return the every question you're asking me. I wish I could be like Sharon. I want to know what you think. Where fashion? Where, well, not you fashion, have me on your podcast. That was fun. True. It's true. It's <laughs> like, my turn now. Okay, that's fair enough. I, um, yeah. <laughs> I I just I I love hearing your own perspective on these on these issues. But you know, I I think the thing with happiness is this is not a word that I talk about a lot as uh that's not part of my research program <laughs> interestingly mm-hmm, enough mm-hmm. Uh, my book transcend is not about happiness and it's not about achievement and i try to make that very very clear in, in the intro now look i would love for the both those things to to come about you know as a result um but that's not what i'm aiming for you know um what i i think that happiness can we can have these fleeting moments of contentment you know it's like rest stops you know like we're we're driving at you know and and what we're really doing is we're driving and we're we're trying to collect as much meaning as possible and we're trying to uh have experiences we have experiences that that make us grow um we have experiences that uh make us uh, as you said was it a contract um uh and uh, and then every now and then we can just sit there, you know, on the grass and be like, wow, I feel content right now. And that's beautiful when that happens, but that can't be the goal and that can't be expected. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, one of the first uh, things I heard when I went to India uh, in the 70s, in the early 70s, was from Buddha, where he said, there's no higher happiness than peace. Hmm. And I was kind of like, yeah, maybe, you know, <laughs> like. Am I allowed to disagree 18, with that? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, uh, but now that I'm far from 18, I think, well, yeah, there's something about when it's not, you know, conscripted peace. It's not coerced. It's not avoiding. It's, it's, it's some level of wholeness of, of being, not being fragmented and, and uh, being really connected to what's actually happening. I thought, oh, yeah, maybe it's true. You know, th- this idea of inner peace is something that's really fascinated me uh, throughout the writing of my whole book because, you know, we have so many parts of ourselves that conflict uh, with each other because that's the way we evolved as humans, right? Like, it's it's not pretty how we evolved. It's not like, you know, the mating, dr- the lust drive is always perfectly in line with the romantic drive. I mean, it's not, right? Mm-hmm. We've all, let's be honest, we're human. And so you have, and I give a million examples of different parts of us that evolved for different purposes at different times, and we have it all in one body. And we somehow, you know, try, expect that we're always going to be these 
you know, mm-hmm. oh yes, well, you know, well, I'll be this harmonious being. It's hard being a, a, a harmonious unit. But you do find this in, in the humanistic psychotherapy tradition. Carl Rogers wrote about this a lot. And, and, I'm, and I'm trying to write about this. I'm trying to carry on that torch as much as I can. I think that um, the more people accept more and more aspects of their being and, and really go down the tunnel, mm-hmm. the depths of their being, really understand their proclivities as they are, not as they wish them to be, um, the more mm-hmm. they start to feel this ease of being, the more they, they do start to... And, and as, as Carl Rogers said, a lot of his patients start off therapy fearing that that process will, quote, unleash the beast in them. They, they have a fear that they're, mm-hmm. if they confront parts that, of themselves they're scared of, that they'll, yeah, like they'll release some sort of... But he finds that uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, instead, the exact opposite happens. People become more socialized. People use those urges in more healthy ways and, and outlets. And, mm-hmm. you know, to me, that's that's so much uh, part of that journey of self-actualization is is seeing how all these parts can kind of um, operate and, 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 and love one another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Like I have a, a Tibetan teacher, Sokhan Rinpoche, who has this practice, um, which reminds me very much of, of mindfulness practice. Uh, he calls it handshake practice. And what we shake hands with are what he calls our beautiful mm-hmm. monsters. You know, all those aspects of ourselves we'd really rather not disclose or even face, you know, uh, head on um, and and be with it in a way that uh, is like shaking hands. You know, it's like, oh, hi, you know, yeah. here you are. It's like a full on acknowledgement. And, and I think that is hard to believe. You know, it's not how most people undertake spiritual practice, for example, or meditation practice. It's more about. Uh, getting over that, you know, and which is why, you know, calling your book Transcend is a very intriguing uh, prospect because most people think of the word transcend as uh, never to be seen again, you miserable part of myself, you know, like I've gone beyond. That's exactly right. I think the interesting thing that we found in our research over and over again is the really, really strong correlation between self-acceptance and other acceptance. And it it does seem it, it does make sense though uh, when you really think about it because if if you the if you really do this meditation practice where you imagine all these different parts of yourself you just like do the I'm, I'm inventing a meditation practice right now but like let's say close your eyes mm-hmm. and then you think about um, you know that's the obligatory close your eyes but then uh, yeah in that, yeah, voice. In that <laughs> voice you know and then you know and yet because you you don't want to freak people you want to be calming you want to be calm but um but but let's say yeah. that there's a cool meditation practice where you close your eyes and then you conjure up in your imagination all the different like put it all on the table in one room, all the sides of yourself. And you just like see it all, right? <laughs> like over there in the corner, you see the fear guy and jumping up and oh my God, you over there in that corner, you see the loving guy, you know, here. And then you do in your practice, think of them all like kind of starting to walk around their handshaking each other. You know, let's say this is like a visualization practice you, you do. You could see how that could, when you approach, when you see someone else in the outside world who is one part of, what is really you can identify, you know, like let's say a person you see someone in the street with fear, right? You can see how you'd be more more likely to to move towards them with a handshake than, you know, how we tend to treat people. You think of how we how people treat homeless people, you know. Um, think about how we yeah. treat uh, people with mental illness in our society, you know, as though 
we have the mentally ill here and then we have us. Oh, we're not that, you know, we're not them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I, I think it makes sense once you think of it, but that's, uh, I can say that's one of the most striking aspects of our data sets on uh, this research we've done on uh, what we call the light triad, which are three components of, uh, of what we think are, uh, are the, the benevolent orientation towards life. And we see self-acceptance is so strongly correlated with other acceptance. It's so high, the correlation. Do you use the term self-compassion? Um, that- I love Chris and Neff's work on self-compassion. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I, I wonder what the difference is between self-acceptance and self-compassion. I mean, I, I know there... Yeah. I'm not <laughs> sure there is one. I'm trying to like channel Chris and Neff for a second. Uh, she'd probably say there is um, in the sense that, um, that maybe there's something going beyond acceptance into actual love. Maybe there's a difference between acceptance and love. Um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. because, because, because I think that like, you can accept things that you don't love about yourself, um, as a first step, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, or you can show yourself, you know, compassion for your suffering. Um, uh, mm-hmm. even if you don't accept, or even, you know, you accept it, but you're like, look, I accept that I can be an a-hole in these situations, but you know what? I don't love that part of myself, but I, I'm admitting it, you know, I'm acknowledging mm-hmm. it's there in the room. And, uh, and I'm going to change, I want to change, you know, so maybe, and I'm going to change mm-hmm. by having self-compassion, right? Maybe, maybe that's a difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm riffing with you. Sharon. Yeah, that, that could be the difference. <laughs> Thank you for the channeling. You I'm, know, I'm riffing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was recently on my podcast. So no, that's great. I think of her voice in my head. I, I, I adore her though. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's great. Yeah. Yeah, no, she was on my podcast too. But, uh, uh, and of course I've known her mm-hmm. for a long time, but, um, yeah, but you know, maybe it was just because I, I myself projected all that into self acceptance. Yeah. You know, that kind of tenderness and the poignancy. Like, yeah, I'd be different if I knew how. But let me like kind of embrace this. I did a thing the other day, um, and uh, a person on the um, video, you know, had a dog with a. A thunder shirt? Is that what it's called? A thunder wrap? Something like that. It's like the dog's freaked out about lightning or storm. It's, it's like a wrap. So it's like a, the feeling of being hugged. It's just this cloth, you know, that, okay. that goes around. It's like swaddling a baby or something like that. And, and, and she was saying how, how much calmer the dog was wearing this garment because it was like being hugged, you know? And well, I'll tell you. So I think if, Think of it like that. Yeah, you know? I mean, I tried a, a weighted blanket, and it called gave me a panic attack. Oh yeah. So yeah, and, well, that's not a good thing. You couldn't. You know, escape I it. tweeted out, uh, out about that experience because I was like, I got to tell people about this because everyone always says like, you get weighted blanket, it'll release, it'll relieve your anxiety. People have to be aware that if you already suffer from generalized anxiety disorder, and you put this heavy thing on you that you can't get off easily, <laughs> I was like. Not a good idea. So I guess it, I guess individual differences Not a good idea. matter. Yeah. yeah, but you know, in this I'm talking about symbolically oh, okay. now. Uh, you know, like yeah. that that sense of yeah. the hug, you know, um, which is some part of acceptance in my mind. You know, it's not a, a cool cold state. It's just like oh yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Sorry, I took that very literally. No, no, I, I'm I'm glad for the. 
the comments because yeah. it is it is a very common recommendation. Um, so I recently saw an article you wrote about uh, toxic positivity. Oh, you saw that? That's a term that's, I did, that's recently become more popular. Uh, and of course, I related it to the idea of spiritual bypass, you know. Yeah. Um, and the term you instead proposed is uh, tragic optimism. So I wonder if you could talk about those <laughs> Well, that's two. a phrase uh, Viktor Frankl used. Again, I'm trying to bring back all these humanistic people. You are. Um, you know, he, he was in the concentration camps and... Uh, and he really was trying to, you know, think to himself a- after that experience and seeing how people could still find some joy in the concentration camps. He was like, how are people still playing games, you know, and like thinking about what they want to do when they leave, you know, and talking and plotting, thinking about, again, activating their imagination network in order to help them get through the situation. Um, you know, he, he talked about tragic optimism as being able to find meaning in any form of suffering. Um, in a, you know, in a way that allows you to process the event and and grow in some way, and and there is there is a, a whole uh, emerging field of post traumatic growth um, that uh, is coming out that has lots of research studies now uh, looking at various different ways people grow from trauma, from creative creativity to increased utilization of their strengths to increased uh, connection to people. Um, Increase sense of purpose, you know, like wow, clarity of vision, mm-hmm. you know, these sorts of things. Maybe the um, difference can also be encapsulated with the, in this experience I had one uh, two books ago. Uh, I wrote Real Love, and um, I had a deadline, and I was late with the book, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I had my final deadline and I turned in the book and I got an away message from the publisher. They were on vacation. Great. Thank you. You know, I could have had another two weeks, but anyway, uh, when I finally heard from the publisher, he said, you know, I really liked your book. And my favorite part of it was when you quoted Roshi Joan Halifax, who said something like, um, don't kind of force yourself to think of the traumas of your past as gifts. Think of them as givens. And first of all, I thought, uh, my publisher said his favorite part of, of my book, I didn't even write. <laughs> you know, she wrote it. And, and then I thought, well, I can appreciate that because there is a kind of pressure yeah. to say, I am grateful for this miserable thing that's happened, but that that's kind of not the point. It's given. It happened. We need to acknowledge that in that. the fullness of our being, and perhaps find that's meaning a, in it. You nailed it. You nailed it. Because I, I, as I try to make clear, it's the point of the post traumatic growth literature is not being grateful for the offending event, right? No one's like, oh, thank goodness we had COVID. <laughs> That's not the point. Right. <laughs> it's exactly what you're saying. It's yeah. it, it, what it's about is that how do we process the event um, in the in, in, when it happened and then the aftermath of it. You know how have our, how has our worldview changed? How has it changed us? It is what it is. There is a, a really um, beautiful quote by this rabbi who lost his son, and he said, "You know, not um, you know, I wouldn't. I have grown so much, you know, from." Uh, this event, but I would give it all back in a second if I could get my son back. But the truth is, mm-hmm, I can't. Mm-hmm. You know, and so this mm-hmm. is the reality I'm living with. And 
you know, I, it, it's a very mm-hmm. poignant quote, um, and it just encapsulates this idea of what the post-traumatic growth uh, uh, literature is all about. And, and that that actually is my next book that I'm under contract with right now. Is um, I, my my colleague Jordan Feingold, who I'm writing it with, she's a doctor. Um, is uh, we're calling it post-pandemic growth. So, yeah. Oh, how great! Yeah, we want to help people. Maybe oh, I can interview you again maybe, when it comes maybe. out. If you Maybe. want, I mean, if you want, I'm always down to talk to you. <laughs> of course, I would love right. it. Are you kidding? It would be so great. When do you think the book well, is coming know. out? Since we're in pandemic, that's land. true. Well, we we've only get we've only been given like you know like like uh, like half a year to write it. So we'll, yeah, yeah, this we're is getting it. We're turning it out. So like if it. all goes well, it'll be out next year. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Great. Because I think of that so many times, you know, like, um, I, I feel, I do feel grateful that, you know, going into this, at least I had like 50 years of practice, mm. you know, I had some skills, I had some ability to remember what I really cared about in life and, you know, some ability to center or recenter, you know, if I got wigged out, just say, okay, you know, take a breath and, and I think about the many, many people who, you know, were not so so fortunate. And, and you can see it, you know, people are like screaming at each other all over the place and, and uh, you know, desperately unhappy. And, and um, anything that can shed a light on that reality and, and the possibility of some growth and, and, uh, healing is just so important. Yeah, something that um, I think is a lot of people are going through right now are emo- is emotional bluntness. And and I think the more that we kind of acknowledge that this is a very common thing that a lot of people experience, you don't feel shame over it, you know. Um, there are things that mm-hmm. used to bring me joy that um, I have trouble summoning up the excitement over anymore. And that bothered mm-hmm. me for mm-hmm a lot of the pandemic and it's starting to reach a level of acceptance of it that it, I am just entering a different shift. There's a phase shift going on and, and not mm-hmm. to fight it, mm-hmm. really not to fight it because there's no, there's no turning back. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's um, we've been fundamentally changed from this pandemic in ways that, you know, mm-hmm. future generations are going to just be like, Oh, no, and no big deal. Every three months we take a booster shot. <laughs> you know, what I mean? It's not going away yeah. folks. I, I mean, yeah. I, I really doubt it will, you know, this, our life, life has been changed, but you know, I think I'm starting to, I think I'm finally starting to lean into that more into my, that my emotional system has changed too. And, and that, that's okay. You know, it's like, it mm-hmm. is what it is. And, uh, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a bad mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. you know, it's only bad when yeah. we, when yeah. we treat the past as though that was good, you know, and now is bad. That's right. that contrast. Right. But why? There's no wall saying that I have to treat treat life like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's also not the end of the story right now either, you know, like things will evolve That's true. again. That's very true. And move and And, and we'll get that. You know, I'm sure I'll get those emotions back in abundance, you know, once I can actually leave yeah, my house. Yeah. You know, that that'd be a good first step. <laughs> yeah. I know that. <laughs> I know that feeling. I was in my New York City apartment um a few weeks ago and uh I had a call from the doorman early in the morning, one morning, and 
He said, I thought we should tell you that we're doing construction on the apartment above. And I said, oh, how long is that going to last? And he said, I don't know. It's a full, it's a full reconstruction. So I had podcasts such as this one. And so I came back up to Barry in order to do it. But the last time I came up to Barry uh, pretty well was March 2020 when I thought it was coming up for two weeks. And it was yeah. over a year, you know. So as I was packing, I was like, why am I taking so much stuff? You know, like, this is really eerie, you know. And it was eerie. It was that feeling of like, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, maybe I'm going to be there for another year. And I don't think so, yeah. but... uh Things yeah, are I didn't different. intend on living in in, uh, in California. <laughs> I didn't intend on it. Yeah, but here yeah. I am. Yeah. yeah. So uh, hopefully our brains and hearts are adaptable, and we can not forget one another in all of this, and, and maybe that will be a good outcome. Yeah, I really, I really, I really hope so. And and for people you know, when their worldview is uh, like, we've had a psychologically seismic earthquake, you know, like our, uh, mm-hmm. our basic assumptions have been shattered about the world. The world mm-hmm. is safe. The world is predictable for many people, for, for a lot of people, you know, who've had chaotic lives their whole life. They're looking at everyone else like, Oh, now you just realize life is chaotic. But you know, for a lot of people mm-hmm. who you know, had everything in order, you know, everything, per, you know, never had any, any, anything like this. Um, you know, you start to you, you change your worldview, and and I think you do become. I, you, I really do think you become stronger, and uh, and you grow mm-hmm. from you know with that more complex worldview of life is not this linear thing that you um, you know you solidify this, then you solidify that, and then you sort of you know that's not it's not what it is. That's not what this life is, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, here we are, jumping off the cliff together. Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> I forgot to do it with Solomon. I wanted to be with Sharon. Let's see what happens. Salzburg. <laughs> oh, I yeah. want to be with you. So just as we draw to a close, I'm wondering if you would lead us in some kind of guided practice or reflection. Oh, sure. I have a little uh, uh, challenge here. We call it a growth challenge in our book, Accept Your Whole Self. Um, so... It's time for you, the listener, for once and all for all to accept the totality of your being. Talking about jumping off the cliff. <laughs> Let's do this. Um, including the parts mm-hmm. of yourself that you most struggle with. Part of acceptance is taking responsibility for your whole self, not just the aspects of your mind or your actions that you like or that make you feel the best about yourself. Because psychological surveys do show that when you ask people to circle the parts of themselves that are the real me, you know, what is the real you, they only circle the parts that are the most moral uh, part of themselves that, that they like about themselves. So this 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 exercise, this little meditation, also is just kind of expanding the whole um, realm of what the real you is, and and contemplating and just thinking about maybe it's all of me. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's the real me. Um, so uh, here's here's the meditation. Settle into a comfortable position and relax your body. Focus on allowing your muscles to relax, bringing your attention to your breath. Inhale deeply as you bring yourself fully into the present moment, imagining yourself sipping in air as if to breathe in the world around you as it is happening right now. And exhale to release everything that has become and release everything that has come before this moment. As you breathe, allow your mind to focus on one or two things you like about yourself. Repeat these qualities in your head 
basking in the parts of yourself that you consider your greatest assets. When you feel ready, allow your mind to wander to some of the qualities about yourself that you may struggle with. Maybe these are qualities you consider to be less desirable or perhaps wish you did not possess. It may feel uncomfortable, but allow yourself to soak in these qualities as you breathe in and out. Once you have summoned these qualities, repeat the following phrases in your mind. I take responsibility for my whole self, including my flaws. My weaknesses are the raw material for personal growth. I accept my whole self in this moment. As you repeat these mantras, accept whatever sensations or urges arise without trying to control or change them. And think about how it felt to do this meditation. And you may want to write your own sort of freeze, different from the ones I provide, which can help you to better accept the totality of your being. It's really, uh, that's the practice, and I wish everyone good luck in this journey of wholeness. It's not not easy, but it's worth it. Thank you. It's, it is the yeah. journey, really. Thank you so much for, for joining me. And to learn more about Scott's work, you can visit his website at www.scottbarrykaufman. It's S-C-O-T-T-B-A-R-R-Y. K-A-U-F-M-A-N.com and get yourself a copy of his latest book, Transcend. And the next one too, whatever that's been called. Uh, Transcend is available in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats wherever books are sold. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.